back. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, and we are back for our next to the last show of 2020. Um, yay! 2020 will be gone soon! Um, but Behind the Lens will be back again in January as we kick off year seven. Uh, very exciting. But... Welcome, welcome. Uh, today, if you're listening, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you are listening, if you want to check out this week's very cool tablescape filled with, for your consideration, awards, screeners, screenplays, books, uh, hop on over to AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and take a look at the live stream. That's the only fascinating stuff that's here. You don't need to see me, but uh, picking out all the different films that are on display uh, <clears throat> that uh, I have seen them all. I want you to know all that are here on display. Um, and I, I can't thank Netflix enough for the spectacular uh, promotional materials, these books that they put together on the making of. Uh, I've had Over the Moon out here for a few days, and now we've got... Uh, now we've got uh, a trial of the Chicago Seven, which is a stunning movie. And uh, at the start of the of season seven, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with the cinematographer of Trial of the Chicago Seven, Fadon Papa Michael. Uh, but as you know, behind the lens we go, behind the lens and below the line, with all the movers and shakers and the award makers, and a lot of incredible stuff despite what has happened with the film industry this year because of lockdown, pandemic, um, there have been incredible films, incredible films come out this year. Um, and dare I say it, my favorite film of the year and still my, my, my vote for best film of the year is Rod Lurie's The Outpost. Uh, hands down, without a doubt, nothing compares uh, for me, um, with the exception of, we've got uh, a hot cinema uh, cinematographic contender in Martin Rue for George Clooney's new movie, uh, The Midnight Sky. I'll be talking to Martin actually on Wednesday this week, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, he's in Berlin, so I'll, we'll be skyping and talking all about shooting The Midnight Sky, but. Awards are heating up. I just turned in for Hollywood Critics Association my top 10 favorite films, which they're going to be trickling out. I'll be posting all kinds of, of more interviews and reviews and awards-themed stuff on BehindTheLensOnline.net this week and next. Uh, and out pop a lot of it on social media, so you will find out my picks this year I always hate to do like number one two three four five I, I don't like doing that for films 
because there are so many wonderful artisanal elements within each film that make it what it is. Um, I just like to say, this: these are my favorites of the year. Uh, these are collectively the best of the year. Uh, but this year, I can safely say that for my money, The Outpost is the best picture of the year. But let's talk about a hot... Can, we're, we got... Uh, a great show today. I'm working without a clock today. The clock broke. So I'm shooting blind here since... <laughs> so I can't gauge how far I'm into something. We're going to kick off the show with my exclusive pre-recorded interview with Julia Hart, writer-director of I'm Your Woman. Uh, a great film, co-written with Jordan Horowitz. Uh, Julia, earlier this year on Disney Plus, you saw Stargirl. She also did Fast Color, Miss Stevens, uh, in the past. I'm a huge admirer of Julia's work. And she really has upped the ante with I'm Your Woman, starring Rachel Brosnahan, Frankie Faison, who I always love seeing pop up in things, Marsha Blake, uh, Arnsey, uh, Kenny, and Bill Heck. Um, it's the story, it's set in the 1970s. Um, disco era, back east, mafia. Uh, oh, Pam just brought me, oh, she stole the clock from her wall. Well, because she has clocks in front of her, um, there on her boards. So, thank you, Pam. Uh, <laughs> so, but this film, I'm Your Woman, is... It is so well done. The attention to detail in creating this world... Uh, that Rachel Brosnahan's character of Jean inhabits is, it is mind-boggling. Um, I look at this film and I see a world that I know well. It was the era I grew up in. It was back east. And yeah, you grew up in suburban Philly. You do get to know a few of those mafia-type folks. No denying it. Uh, but everything about this film creates a world and Julia totally immerses us in it and it is the story of Jean she is a mobster's wife mobsters played by Bill Heck Eddie uh anytime you got anybody named Eddie you got a problem I'm telling you um my brother is an Eddie a nephew is an Eddie my dad was an Eddie um they're problems what can I say um but Jean is, she's been living the life of luxury that he provides her with, and she has had no real concept of how he provides her with the life that she has. And then one day she suddenly, one of his, his uh, guards comes and whisks her away into hiding. Her and a baby that he has unceremoniously shown up at the house with, holding it out like a package saying, here, I got you a baby. Um... She is clueless. Jean is clueless. And as this this is her story. We don't see story crime stories like this from the female perspective. The women, okay, they're off in a room, they're off in the kitchen, they're off in, they're doing whatever they're doing and they're oblivious and they stay oblivious. We never see their reactions to anything or what they're thinking. Julia turns the tables for us and tells us this story from Jean's perspective. And when we first meet Jean, the woman doesn't even know how to cut a tag out of a garment. 
Uh, and as we go through the film, she's shopping in Goodwill. She's carrying grocery bags. She's learning how to cook. She's trying to figure out how to light fires and chop wood, uh, depending on where she's being hidden. And through this, she is not only discovering herself, but she is learning the truth about the life that she has been leading. It is, uh, Rachel Brosnahan is outstanding. She is awards worthy for her performances, Jean. And going toe to toe with her is Marsha Blake um, as Terry. It's a powerful film. It is out now. I can't encourage you enough to see it. Uh, and on every level, every technical level, it is meticulous. But we never lose, lose sight of Jean and her journey and the growth. And interestingly, the growth that Jean goes through, it's very similar if you watch Julia Hart's films. You can see the, the growth in her strength as a director over the years from film to film. But I don't think we'll get to hear the whole thing because at the midpoint of the show, Brian Cavallaro is back with us with his new film, 32 Weeks. But let's get started with our exclusive pre-recorded interview with Julia Hart talking, I'm Your Woman. Hi, Julia. Hi, Debbie. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. I am such a huge admirer of your work. Aw, thank you. I saw Miss Stevens when... God, years ago when that you did that, and then earlier this year, Star Girl was an absolute delight. Oh, thank you so much. That's awesome. So to now see what you've done with "I'm Your Woman," essentially back to back with Star Girl, really interesting. I love that you always have strong females in your stories. But this one, you have done something I have not seen anybody be ballsy enough to do. <laughs> and that is take your mafia-esque crime thriller and tell it from the woman's point of view. You know, I think about The Iceman a few years ago. And yeah, Winona Ryder's part really got built up. But it was still everything was from Michael Shannon's perspective as Kuklinski. Here, we really get to see how Jean is totally in the dark, but then it's her journey. It's not Eddie's journey hiding from somebody who's going to blow his brains out. It's her journey without knowing why she's on this journey, physically or emotionally. And that is such a unique and refreshing perspective. And you, Thank you. You pull this off in spades. Oh, thank you so much. You got it. You don't need to talk to me. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> this and every element, you have this, your whole design, your visual tonal bandwidth is perfect. It's specific to the time frame, to the 70s. Your production design, Gay brings it, who is brilliant. I have really long is. admired, going back to Open Range, I have loved yes. her work. And the, and that the, was her first film as a production designer. I She's previously been an art director, and that was her first film as a production designer. She's a genius. Yeah. And, and then to, our third movie together. But to counter and to see her range, but here, yeah. the two of you, you capture that 70s era. She brings in 
some of that mid-century decor and decoration that's a holdover from the 60s, which worked so beautifully in the different settings, be it in Eddie's house, be it in the, the safe house, row house, that has a very timeless nature to it, to Cal's cabin, and to the disco. And considering I was hanging out in discos back then, <laughs> I know how authentic this was. <laughs> well, she was too. I think that I think that's part. I think that's part of it. Like she was so much, she was so much in the spaces in that era, and yeah. you can really feel how lived in they are. The mixing of the um, the, the time period, I still appreciate that you noticed that because that was really important to us. Because I hate it when I watch a movie that takes place in the 70s that's made now and like everything is from 1975 which as we all know from real life isn't how anything works right. there is there are those holdovers there are those in-betweens there are those antiques like all of that gets mixed together um in real life and yeah. so we really wanted to capture that and actually it's funny the first thing i noticed when cal brings gene to the safe the row house and they walk in and and the, Bryce has this incredible camera angle at the top of the stairs mm. shooting down to catch them coming through the door, the big, heavy, old hardwood doors. And right there to the left of screen, you see the end table, the blonde wood end table. Those blonde wood end tables <laughs> to this day are still sitting, similar ones, in my mother's house. They were made <laughs> by, La by Lane Furniture. And she got those in the early 1960s. Yeah. So to see this attention to detail with these holdovers, and it, it spoke volumes as to the journey you took Jean on, because here she is coming out of her more palatial surroundings in her home with Eddie into a more common, it's a row house for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, the first house I lived in after I was born was a row house in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. It's, it, so you know them well. I know it well. So to see her thrust into that with that whole timeless mix, uh, mix and match, it really starts a great journey for her. Mm. But it's all, all these little details, Julia. Just, oh, I just ate them up. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me because we do, you know, I feel like it's such a privilege to get to make movies. You have to, like, so much time and energy and money and work goes into every moment. And I just feel such a responsibility to take full advantage of that. And I've been lucky enough to find collaborators like Gay, like Bryce, like Patrick Cassidy, who is our set decorator. Mm -hmm who I'm sure found those blondes and tables um, <laughs> himself, uh, who this is also our third film together. Like we love and relish and delight in populating the world with as much authenticity and beauty as possible. So you have no idea how much it means to hear it appreciated. Well, and kudos to Patrick with his set dress because- Oh my God, he's amazing. You he's look at, I, I look in the different rooms, the kitchen of the row house, the bedroom upstairs, even the style of the closet. And that is so traditional of the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, East Coast. And it just fits so beautifully. And all the little accoutrement 
right down to what's in the kitchen, the clock on the wall, the god-awful ugly wallpaper. <laughs> you know, all of that tells us part of the frustration that Jean is going through. Not only is she confused and in the dark about what Eddie really does and what's and where he is and why she and Har baby Harry are on the run, but it's what is this god-awful stuff I'm stuck in? Yeah, we wanted that. We wanted that uh, row house to feel like a doll's house. Yeah, like she was trapped, like she was an object inside this, you know, this maze that was so much bigger than her. That seems, you know, sweet and safe, but is so much more insidious and dangerous mm -hmm. than it looks. And of course, then Natalie O'Brien with the costuming, which, again, it's period perfect, but. The way the two of you have, have designed the costuming to take Jean from more or less thinking she is Barbie doll wife in yeah. the pink in the pink negligee <laughs> boa boa fuchsia colored robe or cover up or whatever we're gonna call it, where she does is so unskilled she doesn't even know how to cut a label out of something. We go from that to goodwill shopping for clothes that they, they come out in paper bags and then all of a sudden she's she goes from this bright bright perfectly coiffed hair and the garments into regular these natural fabrics these wools these heavy coats that uh, you know the the knitted cloche hats and it speaks so much and it actually as we go through I see more and more layers appearing yeah. on her, almost as if armament. The more information she gets, another layer of clothes goes on. Mm -hmm. It's subtle, but boy, is it effective. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> like how much you get and appreciate the details, because so much of the time as filmmakers and, and my department head collaborators, like you're doing all of this stuff and you're, and the detail is important to you because you know that even if an audience member doesn't specifically know exactly what's happening, they'll feel the residue of it and that will affect their experience. But man, hearing you talk about it in as much detail as you are is just music to my ears. Oh. And Natalie is also one of my favorite collaborators. This is our second film together. And one of the things that she did that was so hard on this movie that just blew me away time and time again was the mix of vintage and contemporary. Mm -hmm. Because when you're doing stunt work, you need doubles of the clothes yeah. because you're getting blood on them or they're getting wet and you need to make sure you have backups, especially if you know, you're soaking your lead actress in rain but you have to do another take, you need a whole other you know, set of clothes. Um, so a lot of the stuff for the bigger set pieces she had to replicate. And, of course, we all know most vintage pieces, if we're lucky to find them, there's only one. Yep. And so she managed to find all of this new stuff that just blended so beautifully with the vintage stuff. And then with the vintage stuff, you have to make sure that it looks new. Yeah. Because it can't look old. So that was really, uh, it was incredible watching her figure all of that stuff out. Well, and especially as we're looking at the disco scene and you see that gorgeous coat that Terry is wearing. Yes. That is to die for. But then the the sequin jumpsuit that Jean is wearing with the faux fur uh, short jacket, um, you know, and the shoes. I had shoes like that. <laughs> I, I actually will admit I had shoes like that. 
Um, <laughs> Rachel, man, she she managed. She didn't twist her ankle. I I, I said a prayer every day. She was, she was incredible in them. Very skilled. Wow, that is skilled. Uh, I know that from experience. That is yeah. skilled. But to, to see all of that, and it's not just for your lead actors. You've got to populate everybody else mm. in there. Well, and, that's one of the biggest challenges of doing period pieces, especially on smaller budgets, because everything has to be everything has to be within the aesthetic of the period that you've decided you want it to yeah. be. You know, it's not just like 70s. It needs to be within the world of the 70s that we've created specifically in the world of this movie. And so... It was, it was a lot of work for a lot of people, and I think they all did a beautiful job. Yeah, and right down to your cars. The cars yes. are all... Well, that was the most fun. The Lincolns, the Caddies, um, just fabulous. Fabulous. And didn't you find that came in very handy to have those larger cars because you could fit the bodies in the back seat? <laughs> exactly. That's a good point. Yeah, those were the cars were the most fun. Very challenging for the actors to learn to drive just because they're so different. Uh -huh. And I don't think Arinze, Arinze Kenny, who plays Cal, I don't think he had ever driven on this side of the road. So he had a lot to learn with these cars. Oh, my God. Um, but, you know, painting, we paint like we did find a bunch of really beautiful old cars and painted them to fit the aesthetic of, you know, the color palette of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that, that was definitely one of the most fun parts of the process. You know, and your color palette is interesting. What were your considerations with this ever-changing color palette that you have that, you know, it and it really shifts in tone once we get out to the cabin. Um, so I'm curious what your considerations were in developing your tonal, your uh, your color palette and the, t and the visual tonal bandwidth. It's funny, color, I think color and music to me are the two, the two things that I am most attracted to when I'm telling a story mm -hmm. that I think can do so much work so subtly. Um, and, you know, this it was so important to me to shoot this movie in the fall on the East Coast because, to me, autumn on the East Coast is such a time of change and transformation, but not in the way that spring is where, like, life is blooming. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, this, it's this death. It's this yeah. loss. It's so beautiful and so full of color. And that, to me, was so very much what Jean was going through. You know, it's cold and there's a chill, but there's still color and there's change. And that just so connected to her character for us. And so we really loved the idea of going from these brighter, more artificial colors in her life with Eddie to, as you said, these more natural um, colors and fibers. And um, as, as that change is happening... Um, and also, of course, you know, then at the end when they go to the disco and they're in the city, it's a whole other color yeah. palette of darker, more gritty, um, dirtier, more broken. And so it was really fun to portray Jean's changing arc through the season and through the location of the film. And of course, in the city with the disco and then the day after and the rainstorm and all, while well, everything else is darker and gritty. Here she is, is mm. in this white sequined, silver sequined jumpsuit, standing out like a sore thumb yeah. in a black neighborhood as well. Yeah. And this That's is... like white blonde woman. Yeah. I, this, is, this is one of the things that... Another one of the elements that I really, really love what you have done here 
with your story construct is that we have this white woman who is in a black community bonds with this black woman and the authenticity that you show because I used to I used to be in Center City Philadelphia all the time and in North Philadelphia um, so to see it unfold it's not something that we naturally see but you show it to us it really shows us the white female privilege of the time, mm. even though feminism was was just starting, and Jean hadn't quite gotten there yet. But well, you, thank you so much for noticing that. That is something else that was incredibly important to us from the script level was that you know even though Kimberly Crenshaw hadn't coined the term yet, obviously intersectionality or the lack thereof was something that was incredibly prevalent in the period and yeah. white feminism was already a huge problem and had been for a very long time yeah. in America. And it was really important to me to show the experience of Jean in her being, um, you know, sidelined because she was a woman, but privileged because she was white, then see the world through Cal's experience as a black man, and then one step further see the world through the experience of Terry as a black woman, and show their community and their world, which was so far away from this white suburban bubble that Jean had been living in. Mm -hmm. And so much of a bubble that Jean didn't even know what Eddie actually did for a living, yeah. which yeah. I also find interesting because... Back East, with all of the mafia segments and all the crime uh, syndicates back there, it's very rare. Like, if you had all the Italian syndicates and the, the enforcers, you didn't find any black men as enforcers. Mm -hmm. And well, again, it was like wanting to show the sides of that world that you hadn't yeah. necessarily seen before that were definitely happening and definitely there you know cal got roped into this world by eddie and you know desperately tried to get out but obviously you know once you're in it's impossible yeah. to get out and how different that experience was for him as a black man versus eddie as a white man and and that's one of the reasons i think that you also have him he is doesn't have much dialogue at all it's one of those seen but not heard situations. Mm. And that really struck me, and it's very powerful. Very he's, a very, he's a very powerful presence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he, I mean, he, he and Rachel both, like, so much of their time together on screen is silent, but they're saying so much, and they did such a beautiful job playing that subtlety together. Mm-hmm. Oh, their chemistry is fabulous, Julia. It is absolutely fabulous. But yeah, I'm curious, what was the impetus that started this journey of creating this story of genes and bringing in a baby? That, and I have to say, that's probably the funniest moment in the entire film. When Eddie walks in the house and says, Here! He's yours! <laughs> it's like, where did you get him from? A supermarket or something? Um, but what was the impetus? Where was the kernel that started this story? Because it is such a unique perspective. It was watching all of those movies and loving all of those movies, all of those 70 crime, 70s crime dramas that are directed by men and center male protagonists. 
and also have all of these amazing supporting female characters played by these amazing actresses, Diane Keaton in The Godfather, Tuesday Weld and Thief, and then Teresa Wright in Straight Time, and Allie McGraw in The Getaway. You know, they, they're all amazing, but they only have a handful of scenes, and I loved the idea of taking one of those characters and giving her center stage and giving her a full life and seeing her journey and her perspective and at the time that we, my um, my writing partner, I feel like I've, we've talked about all of my collaborators, and we haven't talked about my favorite one yet. <laughs> that Jordan guy you're married to. Horowitz, who is my <laughs> husband and writing partner and producer, uh, around the time that we started to come up with the idea for the film, we had just become parents for the first time. And we now have two kids. And I just thought, you know, these women are always sidelined in these movies or they're sent off to safety when, you know, everything starts to go down. And the idea of, as a new parent, having to not only protect yourself and figure out what's happening for yourself, but to have to also protect and keep safe and keep um, happy this helpless, small, helpless being just felt like the perfect way to really bring Jean to life and to bring the the terror and the uncertainty and the danger of that world to life was to see it through a woman trying to protect her baby. And of course, you've got a woman who can't even take care of herself, let alone a child who can't even boil water or cook and scramble an egg, but has to figure out how to care for a baby. And at the same time, where is my husband, my provider? Where is he? Oh my God, the money's gone. I can get a job. I can get an apartment. Okay. Yeah, while well, people are trying to find you and kill you. Uh-huh. So this whole the journey that we go on with her, this growth and her fight coming into her own, not only as a woman, but as a functioning person, is the way it unfolds is just fabulous, Julia. Oh, thank you so much was really important to us to tell the story of an ordinary woman because I think ordinary women's stories are valuable and matter and ordinary women we want to see ourselves on the screen you know it's fun when you get to see a female character who's a you know international assassin or a superhero or the CEO of a multinational corporation or whatever it is like that's all great and important. We need to see women in those positions, but we also need to remind ourselves that, you know, there are there are so many movies about ordinary men, <laughs> and we don't have enough that center a woman whose greatest ambition in life is to get a job in an apartment, and that there's nothing wrong with that. That that story matters too. And I and I have to tell you, any woman that can walk in those shoes. In the rain and not and not twist their ankle, fall down. She is a superhero. Uh, yeah, well, I, that that ultimately I think is the message is that we all have we all have the strength within us. We just don't always get tested, but that doesn't make us any less powerful. Now, two big elements of this film I have to ask you about. One are all of your action scenes because you have some. I and we're gonna leave. We're gonna leave you with that little tease uh, with Julia Hart, um, because we've got about another ten minutes of her interview to go. We've got Brian Cavallaro on hold, uh, but 
you will be able to hear the rest of Julia's interview, maybe at the end of, t- of the show today. I- I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see what happens. But let's move on and welcome back the wonderful Brian Cavallaro. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you again. How are you doing? Likewise, I feel the same. I love your show, and I'm happy to be back on. Well, I have to say, 32 weeks is nothing like <laughs> against the night. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thank, I think. <laughs> um, what? And I, I actually emailed Karen <clears throat> about this. And I said, whereas with Against the Night, you had no electricity, you're bringing generators, you're shooting with headlamps in total darkness. You go the total reverse here and you're shooting out on the beach. You're in sunny California. Everything is light and bright tonally with a potential darkness underneath, you know, you know showing its its ugly head in moments uh, within the storyline. But you went with two totally, you went to opposite ends of the spectrum here, and it really shows a great range for you as a visual storyteller. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and I think I really was interested in challenging myself and doing something different. And, and, and I think for sure, like you said, I think, I think we, we hit that mark. You didn't want to go back into a prison again? <laughs> I not quite yet. <laughs> not quite yet. I, I I want you to go back in to the nobody. It's going to be hard for anybody to ever top the experience and what you achieved um, with against the night. Uh, oh, thank you. Because that truly, truly, is incredible work that you and the team pulled off. Um, tell everybody what. 32 weeks is about and where you came up with this bright idea. <laughs> well, the 32 weeks, you know, I guess it's just a, a straight horror film, right? Right. And 30, 32 weeks, I'd read an article. I mean, 32 weeks, as you said, has some dark undertones to it. And I read an article about some of the, the dark undertones there and maybe a little bit of the dangers of social media and catfishing. And I thought that that was a sort of a great premise for what could become a horror film. And as I started sort of outlining, I found the story of the relationships that lead to this. And, and I really became interested in that and exploring those more. Um, and that's sort of how the, the story was born. And uh, I became very interested in how, you know, people are not totally honest with each other. And especially the beginning of a relationship and how that can kind of morph into things that are quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, of course, here we have our heroine, Cole, the wonderful Nicole Salsa, is back after working with you in Against the Night. Uh, And she plays Cole, who is in this car accident. And when she finally awakens, she has short-term amnesia. And you play with this concept so beautifully because you can really take that in any direction. And it really sets us up for and gets us thinking, who do you trust? You're trying to reconstruct your life, which is now a a big chunk of it is a blank slate. 
who do you trust to help you repaint that canvas? And you have some great performances here that creating ambiguity, Brian. You are masterful at creating ambiguity. Um, <laughs> be, be it in the dark or in the daylight, um, you are you are masterful at it because there are moments where okay, can you trust the alleged BFF, Hannah? Um, she's no longer her roommate. Well. Gee, why isn't she her roommate anymore if they're best friends? Or, you know, why is she the, the emergency contact, but she hasn't spoken to her in a while? And all these little things start popping up. And you beautifully integrate the power of social media here. Beautifully integrate that. Was that always was that an important aspect to include in this film? In it this it was, and you know, I there was a lot more of it in the screenplay, and a lot more, I think, into what what we know of Hannah now, that character, the best friend character. Mm-hmm. And I found that the more I took out, the more interesting it became um, to sort of hit on the ambiguity, as you, as you say, and and it really helped. I think people paint pictures in their mind of what what they believe her life may have been like as, as some of the, the blanks are filled in. Well, and, you know, a lot of that also then falls to your casting. Casting Scott Bender and Cameron, uh, Cameron Taggy or Tag? Yep, Taggy. Tag. Okay. Casting Scott and Cameron. Scott as Simon and Cameron as Warren. As Warren. Simon was allegedly the most recent boyfriend. Uh, Warren was the boyfriend before. Okay. And here is where the look of each of these guys really comes into play. Because you look at Scott as Simon, and he looks like, he looks kind of like a very young, I don't know, one of the Aston brothers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, cherubic and, you know, really sweet and nice. Of course, you wonder, it doesn't really fit with her as a girlfriend. Then you start seeing pictures and we finally meet Warren. And he's tall, he's dark, he's good looking. But there's something about him that feels menacing in his look. And you really play with that to your advantage here. Um, where the look of the character really is so key to how we're interpreting each one of them and their dynamic and their relationships. And I found that really interesting that you did that. Thanks. I, I definitely feel very lucky with cast, with the casting. You know, I, I wrote the part of Cole for Cole, which is no, no big surprise there right. <laughs> with the name. Um, and I had her in mind the whole time. And I, I think she's really tremendous. Um, but casting the boys w- was something that I knew that the film would really like hinge on. Yeah. Um, because you'd have to sort of believe both sides of the coin for both of them. Um, and and certainly you don't want to feel completely taken off guard when, you know, the, the final act reveals itself. Yeah. And, and of course, hand in hand with that, as things are getting revealed about each one of these men, you've got Hannah lingering there who you always suspect knows a lot more than she's saying. Uh, right. She's, 
Yeah. She, she's <laughs> of a, all the nefarious characters, she's the sneakiest one, right? Uh, actually, yes, yeah, she really comes across. And I found that really interesting that you did that. Um, of course, women will be that way. Let, let's be honest. Women will be that way. Did, could she have had her own designs on one of the men? Could, uh, you know, was there more? Did they have a huge falling out? That it wasn't, because we never really do find out why they aren't really, any of the details as to why the two of them are no longer living together. Uh, because you get the impression that Hannah has no job. Uh, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> so where's she getting money and how's she paying rent wherever she went? Um, Cole is giving private violin lessons to students. Um, I don't know, you know, how lucrative private lessons have gotten over the years, but <laughs> <laughs> but you you get I do. you throw all these little nuggets out there, Brian. <laughs> well, I do I do like that you know, girls and boys, right? Like they best friends and friends sometimes like to lead a relationship down a certain path, mm -hmm. right? Like they'll, you know, butt their nose in for lack of a better uh, term, but you know, and the, but they're on the outside of the relationship, right? And it's not always what's best for that relationship. And I thought, I thought that was really interesting. And I definitely wanted to, and, that, and, and in this scenario, in this framing, you know, could be dangerous. I, it just and the way that the way you give us breadcrumbs, you really are very selective. And this is where your editing comes into play. Your pacing is so well done at feeding the audience and feeding Cole at the same time, because we're is for we're really as in the dark as she is. But we at least have some sense because she needs to trust somebody. So she's blindly listening. We as the audience have a little more chance to be objective and, and take a step back and say, hmm, now is she really telling you everything? Because here's somebody who's so desperate to fill in those blanks that she will believe whatever she's getting told by whomever uh, is telling her and the way you structure that and you build Cole's trust it elevates with one and then it drops down and it goes up and down and, and you create an ambiguity within her as to who she should be believing uh, instead of trusting her own gut instincts which is where another great casting call you've got Chris Ann Russell as a psychiatrist Dr. Caldwell She's spectacular. Brian, she's spectacular. Yeah. yeah, she's tremendous. She has not been an actor her whole life. This is new to her. She's working at the Beverly Hills Playhouse, and she is really tremendous, and I, I think she's got a bright future. Oh, I love her. And the way that you and your, and your DP, Will, Will Barrett, I love Will's work, going back to the very first hatchet he did with Adam Green. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I I think Will is is fabulous, and to see him lens a film like this one versus something dark and foreboding like the the Hatchet trilogy uh, is is fabulous to see. And also, he did the Bay TV series, which I I think he just excelled at as well. He's very good. And in won an Emmy for that. Yeah, I mean, he's very good at 
using light and lens to tell pages in the story. Yeah, yeah, I was happy to have him on board. He he definitely elevated the look of the movie. Oh, my God. The look is beautiful. But the way he frames and captures Chris Russell as Dr. Caldwell, it really personalizes it, the way the two of you elected to have full frontal framing on her as she's talking to Cole, so that she's essentially talking to us. And very striking but very effective because she's making us think more as well. Right. Like what would we do in this scenario? Yes. You know, if this is, this person telling us this, right? Yeah. yeah I, and you look, you believe her, the, the concern and the real empathy, but objective empathy that she has. Um, so resonant, so believable. That yeah, she's very convincing. Yeah, I you just you knocked it out of the park with with this casting, well, Brian. You really did. Well, well, they get all the credit. I was happy to have them. <laughs> you know what is it? I got to ask you what is it that led you to Will as the cinematographer for thirty two weeks? So Will and I have both done a lot of unscripted work, and we met. Uh, on a TV series five years ago that he was a DP on that I was producing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd always talked about wanting to work together on something narrative. And, you know, this came up. He was available. And and uh, it was excellent. It was, a, it was a great collaboration. We've worked together on a, a bunch of small things and commercials. And we were happy to finally be able to do a feature together. Well, I think it's a fabulous collaboration, I've got to tell you. I mean, well, we hope to do many more. I, I want to see many more from the two of you. You know, what kind of influences did you have, tonal and visual influences, did you look to for this one? I really I really looked to The Gift a lot, the Joe Eggerson movie. Okay. I, I thought that did a tremendous job of um, presenting uh, somebody that, you know, the audience would believe has good intentions and, you know, maybe he's just a little off-putting, but... You know, he maybe he's not such a bad guy, mm-hmm. um, but you know, ultimately, you know, there's a couple of twists and turns that that you know lead us down a different path, and that was a, for sure a big inspiration in terms of like how to handle this tonally, how to make it seem like it could go either way. Yeah, I, the, the look of the film was just inspired by Santa Monica. You know, we you know um, against the night I'm from Philadelphia, I knew that prison. And I wanted to take advantage of it. And here I, I live in Santa Monica, fortunately, and see it every day and felt like I had ideas about the way I wanted to capture it. Yeah, it, it, it distinctly different. And because I'm from Philly as well, I mean, I understand the contrast that you have in the two in the two productions. And you and I could feel that as you're really embracing the light after the drab darkness of a prison with no electricity. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I really love... You're, when you say it like that, you're, you're not making me miss it. <laughs> well, I, I want you to miss it so you'll go back and do another film there. <laughs> you, you can never have too many dark films in... Yeah, it could be... COVID could have infested the prison. That could be a yeah, story. COVID... Yeah. Could have infested the hauntings of it. That could be where it came from. It didn't come from China. 
It came from Philly. <laughs> um, you know, that or it, my eldest nephew who plays uh, semi-pro volleyball, he had just been in China on a goodwill tour with the U.S. team playing volleyball in China uh, in December last year before, just before COVID broke out here. And yeah. I have long said, you brought it back. It is your fault. <laughs> There's a movie there for sure. You yeah. did it. Um, yeah. But, no, I, I love the lightness of 32 Weeks, Brian. The lightness. It just, it keeps you off guard. But at the same time, it adds a comfort level to the character of Cole. You've got a great metaphor there. With everything is light and open. And you get that blank slate feeling, that white canvas. Um, shooting it the way that you and Will did. And it just adds so much to this whole idea of someone with amnesia trying to reconstruct their life. Or at least the portion that's missing. And I just, I just love it. I really love it tonally. You never get claustrophobic. You keep everything open. And it, it works so well. Just so well. well. It's easy when you have a place like Santa Monica. You know, you, you want to see more of it. So that and, helped. You know, talk, talk, about, talk to me about the music. Music is so key in this film. Uh, in terms of triggering memories, which is something that I think will resonate with everybody. We all have those triggers that music gives us. You hear a song, you instantly get images in your head or feelings, emotions, and you use that here, and it's so perfect. And you have a very eclectic array of, of musical diversity here. From classical, uh, classical pieces, the violin, and then just the background, the subtlety of ambient music in the background. What what, what was your your thinking on the music of this film? Well, I, I wanted to keep the pacing of the movie. Uh, you know, I wanted to keep it moving. Right, I, I was very cognizant in the screenplay stage to really not have something be more than two or three pages, and to help it go move from scene to scene. And I felt that same way about music. I wanted to keep people on their toes and not, you know, fall into one specific kind of genre. Um, obviously, you know, the character of Cole likes classical music. She likes to play the violin. Um, very lucky to obviously get a lot of great classical music into the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want that to define how the entire film sounded. I, I wanted to... You know, Josh, uh, we're at his house a few different times, and he likes uh, a certain kind of music. And so that incidental music was there. Um, same when people are driving in cars. You know, they're listening to sorts of different incidental music. And I, I really wanted that to, to keep it lively. And, and uh, you know, they're at a taco truck, right? Like, there's different music coming from the taco yep. truck. Um, so it was very important for me to, like, keep it as you would hear music walking around Santa Monica. You would hear just a wide variety of music. Did you run into any kind of issues um, with licensing some of the music? Uh, no, I tried to get ahead of that. Because <laughs> <So. laughs> that's all. I certainly have in the past. So uh, yeah. I was like, all right, what? Yeah. 
But this is where this is where your years of experience as a producer and doing so many different television pieces. I think this is what really plays to your advantage because you've hit a lot of these hurdles before. You know, you know what's coming and how to try and avoid it um, when you're constructing, when you're writing and directing. Um, but you know, even with you, it was I. I had to wonder. It's like, oh my God, how much money was he spending on this? Um, as I'm hearing, you know, different uh, different musical piece selections pop up, um, but it just it just here again it works so beautifully with this story. Um, how difficult was the editing process in order to keep us keep that ambiguity, keep some tension there, and just dole out the little little breadcrumbs and not give us a big reveal. There was. I was very lucky to work with two great editors, uh, Hannah Sterwald and Jonas Mensgard. They uh, were great. They led me down certain paths that I didn't know existed. Um, and they were very patient with helping to find the story. Um, there was a lot in the first act that we cut out um, that were part of their suggestions uh, to just kind of help get us into get us into the story, get us into the fun stuff, and take away some of the exposition, which is, you know, a lot of questions you could have, right? mm-hmm. but are ultimately sort of boring, right? Um, and so they, they were instrumental in all of that. And I have to say, during your flashback pieces and your, your rewind, rewind life pieces and your opening, your opening titles uh, and then at certain points within the film, so well done. Um, I love the flashback moments we get a, a snippet, and then we get a little longer snippet, and then a couple more pieces come together. And not only are those little montage, they're like mini montages, not only are they cut so well, but where you have placed them is perfect. So you really, you were doing edits within the edit. Thanks. Yeah, that was, I couldn't have done that without one of the producers, uh, Ryan Purvis. He's had a lot of experience with that kind of stuff and what's too much and what's too little. And he really helped guide that part of the process. Um, but yeah, it's a little, it can be confusing and challenging because there are two major kinds of flashbacks, right? Like there's her memory flashback mm-hmm. and then there's just a, an overall story flashback. Right. And so keeping them separate and I mean, flash, <laughs> flashbacks within flashbacks is, is certainly challenging. And if you would have told me I'd be doing that in film school, I would have told you I'd probably make a mistake. But uh, so it was gentle to handle. Was there any kind of litmus test with the with regard to those flashbacks as to how many or how much would be revealed? Certainly, um, we fortunately I think got a good chunk of like understanding how much we needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, just. From the, just from the storytelling, and I don't think we, I think we all really liked them, especially the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all liked that it was, because it felt like it would be long. I mean, there's a, a flashback that's well over five minutes long, and, you know, on paper it felt like a, it could be a little long, and we'll just get to the meat of it, but there's so much character development in there. It was something that we really leaned into as a way to get to know these characters that are not in the, you know, typical structure that we're working with. Yeah, and... It saves you an exposition, too. Uh, it, it, yeah, that's right. And that's why the editors helped me cut out a lot of the you know, exposition I had in the beginning 
because, you know, they pointed towards that we can get a lot of this done in the flashbacks. Yeah, I just, so well done. And, of course, without giving anything away, you actually do still have us guessing at the end of the film. Uh, Fortunately, if you're still guessing, that's good. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That That was the plan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, and I will not say it on the air, but this, the film ended and I was like, oh my God, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that part of it, you talked about influences. That part of it, I think, really was seeing First Reformed, uh, Paul Schrader's film. Uh-huh. I saw that as I was working on the screenplay and I walked out of that theater saying, I know I'm going to end this now. Uh, it just, uh, I, you know, you've got some open-ended questions that if I were Cole, I'd be, I'd be delving into at this moment. (laughs) Uh, I would have been, I would have finished delving before I, before I, you know, closed my computer at one point, but, oh my God, just so well done, Brian. Another winner. Oh, thank you so much. Another winner. You know, so, yeah, what would you say was the biggest challenge in bringing 32 weeks to fruition? I, I would say, you know, and I, I knew this getting into it, and, and again, talking about wanting to challenge yourself and do something different, I knew that Against the Night would be simple in terms of staging and mm-hmm. locations, because we're really good, just going to shoot most of it in one spot. Right. This, I knew I wanted to bounce around to literally hundreds of locations yeah. in the course of 90 pages. And so I knew that was going to be the biggest challenge to really kind of go out of your way, set up a shot and get a shot for something that you knew would maybe only be in the movie for 10, 15 seconds. Um, it's hard. It, it's hard to sort of set up, you know, we're in the Venice canals. I think it's in the movie for 10 seconds. We're in mm-hmm. front of the Arrow theater. It's in front of the movie for 10 seconds. So really to just go to these places and set up. Um, it's something that you, you know, you want to look at and cross it off the shot list and say, this is a lot of effort for just a little bit of the movie. Um, so that was definitely the challenge was getting all these little bits and pieces to put the movie together. But by the same token, you need all those little bits and pieces here because you're trying to show a world um, that somebody has forgotten. So you need right. all it couldn't the, have been done without it. Yeah. yeah. So we need to see all these little bits and pieces that made up her world to see if any of them trigger her memories or help create, fill in that blank canvas that she's got now. Um, so it was well worth all of your effort with that multiplicity of locations, Brian. Well, thank you so much. So now where can everybody see 32 weeks? Uh, Most of the places you can rent things digitally. So it's uh, Amazon, uh, Google Play, YouTube TV, Vudu. So right from, right from your couch, like everything else. (laughs) Like everything else, yeah. Did you get any kind of drive-in theatrical with this one, or is it all just straight digital? It's straight digital, but we were lucky enough to get into the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival and the Rome Film Festival, and they had a great uh, drive-in program there, and even even a, a boat-in program where people could take their boats in to watch some of the films in the festivals. And did you get to go there for that? I did not, because I'm, I'm being a good boy and not traveling so much right now, but... Uh, <sighs> Some of the the pictures look pretty cool. A boat in festival of all you know of all times to have a boat in and you couldn't fly over to to, 
ride in on a boat to see your own film. <laughs> maybe maybe could have taken a boat here from from the marina. It would take a couple weeks, but yeah. But you know, hey, you might have thought about that. Of course, then yeah. who knows? COVID could have floated down from the air onto the boat. Who knows in the, <laughs> in this right. world? Oh, as always, Brian, it has been a joy talking to you again. Oh, and thank uh, you. Likewise. And just another winner. Totally different. Oh, thank you so much. Totally different. Um, just as enjoyable. And again, the when the film ends, it leaves you thinking. It makes you think and wonder. Um, so I can't wait to see what your next one is. Me too. We'll you, see. Oh, You'll yeah. be the first to know. Oh, I hope so. Brian, thank you, thank you, thank you. And have a wonderful holiday season. Come up with another movie. Thank you. Same to you. Come up with another movie. All right. Movie. Well, yeah, will do. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was writer-director Brian Cavallaro talking about his new film, 32 Weeks, which you can find everywhere digitally. And, yes, if you want to really see a range of a film director... Also, watch 32 Weeks, see his prior film, Against the Night. Um, you, it will blow your mind uh, to see uh, his range and his diversity as a writer-director. That is, that is all the time we have today. Unless, no, we'll, do we want, do we want to run another, what? How many minutes do we have left on Julia's? Do we want to run eight minutes of it? We have eight minutes left of Julia's. Do we Do we want to do it, Pam? Huh? We can do it. All right. We are now going to jump back to Julia Hart's interview talking about I'm Your Woman. We are going to pick it up where we left off before Brian Cavallaro joined us. And we're about to talk about two big elements in the film. Action scenes and working with babies. That kind, the old school action. And your car, those car chases are fabulous. That car roll that your stunt team does is immaculate. It is perfection. So I'm curious for you as a director, you, the experience of doing these old school stunts these chases and action with, gu- you know, guns blazing and blood dripping and a baby working <laughs> with a baby. It was so fun. Um, it was so fun getting to direct a car chase. It was so fun getting to direct the shootout at the nightclub. Um, it's obviously also challenging. And, you know, I the, first and foremost for me always is safety. Um, and so, you know, you're always, you're always anxious about that and making sure everyone stays safe, but it was also really fun. And I had an amazing stunt coordinator in Alan D'Antoni. And part of the reason I hired him and wanted to work with him was because he, like me, approaches this stuff from a human perspective, not Mm -hmm. from a, like, isn't this cool? Look at these explosions. But from, from the place of care, I mean, he cares so much about his team and his team loves him for it. And. So it's just this very, like, you know, we're doing all of this, like, big stunt work, but 
from from a, from a place of caring about each other and protecting each other. So it was a really special experience, and I um, I would definitely do it again, even though it is it is scary, you know. <laughs> like but, like they're they're professionally trained stunt people, and they do this every day. But it's still you know it's still always a risk, and I was just so glad that nobody nobody got hurt, and we you know we got the shots at the same time. And what about working with a baby? Oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> I I had this dream to just set out to prove that it could be done um, <laughs> and that it wasn't something to be feared or avoided. I think in general, our society mm, treats babies like they're not people. And I wanted to make a movie to remind everyone that they are, you know, they are observing and absorbing everything. They are feeling and experiencing everything. It is writing itself in their bodies and they're, they carry they carry who they are as babies with them for the rest of their lives. You know, mm-hmm. so much of what we're all dealing with as adults is from the unconscious of our our time as babies. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted to capture as much of that as possible in a movie. And it is a challenge. You know, babies can only work four hours a day. Like, they don't care that you're making a movie and you need them to be asleep or you need them to be laughing when they're crying, you know. And it just made a whole room of adults on a film set, which is, you know, high pressure, time, time, you know, clock is ticking. Um, and it just made us all slow down and breathe and just be in the moment. And um, it was a really amazing experience. We had these amazing babies. It turns out Rachel is the only person I know who loves babies as much as I do. Aww. So uh, even though she's not a mom herself yet, so we, you know, we, we had so much fun spending time with these two amazing babies, Justin and Jameson and their mom, Caitlin. Um, and it was just a really special, different experience, you know, like when there's a baby around, everyone just acts differently. Everybody's calmer. Everybody's kinder. Everybody, t- you know, walks a little slower in a good way. So it was, it was a really, it was really special and I would definitely do it again. It wasn't, I think if you know, you know how to do it and you know what to look for and you know when to be patient and when to move on, mm-hmm. um, it can, it can be a really, um, it can bring something really unique to a movie. And something that you did in, in with the dialogue that I really loved is there's a scene in there, and this is more than once, and Gene is actually saying, he won't remember. He, mm. Harry won't remember this. If she can get him away, he will never remember this trauma. Mm. And I think that was very, very important because it's telling us that she knows the sooner she makes a move, the better her baby's going to be. Exactly, exactly. And, and that, that that is what's most important to her. Is she knows, like, there's probably no escaping the trauma of her own life, but she can give him a better life. And that's, you know, that is that is the most important thing we can do as parents or for the next generation is just break these cycles of trauma and give kids a better chance than we have and, and make the world a better place for them than it was for us. And, of course, to see her embracing Paul and worrying about him, mm. particularly after he has saved and protected her baby. Yeah. That just, oh, that just tugged at my heartstrings. <laughs> He'd never been in a movie before, and he's a beautiful <gasps> actor and a lovely kid, Damari. He, um, <gasps> he'd never been, his mom put him on a self-tape on her iPhone and sent it to our casting director, and I just fell in love with him. Uh, he's a really, really special, beautiful kid. And again, like anytime you can just capture behavior, you know, instead of yeah. like child acting, it's such a gift. And he just, he was so natural on oh, the screen. Oh my God. Well, one question, one last question before I let you go, Julia. 
This is so lovely talking to you about this film. You too. Thank um, you. But I've got to ask you, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker making this film? This film that bucks the system, that takes us in a new direction, opens our eyes. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into your approach to future films? It was a big it was a big one on this one because I think I spent a lot of my early career as a filmmaker and also I used to be a teacher and I think I did this then too. I think it's something that women do a lot, which is like want to behave appropriately so that we look good, you mm -hmm. know, like so that other women maybe get like if if I'm nice and follow all the rules, they'll hire another woman because I followed all the rules. And that's like the worst thing you can do when you're making art is follow the rules. And again, like safety is so important to me. So I'm not talking about that. I will never even bend a safety protocol. But I'm talking about like just not not caring so much about doing things the way you're supposed to do them and letting yourself have the freedom to do them the way you think will be best ultimately for the piece of art that you're trying to make. Mm -hmm. oh. And... I think that ultimately is the biggest lesson that I will take away from this movie. What is that great quote about, like, well-behaved women never make history? I thought about that a lot on this movie, that, like, when men, men do it all the time because <laughs> they have always been invited to the table and they have always been given opportunities, so they don't have to worry about that. And I think as women, we just need to worry about that less and just let ourselves be free and be ourselves and take risks because the work will be better for it. Well, I'm glad you took a risk with this one because it pays off. It really oh, does, thank Julia. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to see what you bring us next. You just get better and better with every film. I can see the growth in you as a filmmaker from film to film, and that's so exciting. That is, again, music to my ears because that's all I want to do. You just always want to keep getting getting better and, and moving forward so thank you so much oh and thank you so much julia this has been a joy and i can't wait till the next time i get to talk to you thank you so much debbie i loved talking to you this was such a wonderful conversation and that was julia hart talking i'm your woman it is out everywhere get comfy sit down watch it at home she truly is. She took risks. She thought outside the box. And she delivered an amazing film. A great story. A wonderful film. Attention to detail. Impeccable casting, starting with Rachel Brosnahan. Um, see it. See it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, also, Brian Cavallaro, 32 weeks. Now, next week, next week... We've got Mike Stasco joining us to talk about his film, Boys vs. Girls. Um, one of his partners in crime, Eric Schiller, may join as well. But you're also going to hear my exclusive interviews with Robert Rodriguez and Yaya Goslin and Vivian Blair talking about their upcoming film on Christmas Day, We Can Be Heroes. So, until next week... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.